We're going to be in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, but we're going to kind of pop around Genesis a little bit. A few weeks ago, um, we showed the, the film, The Insanity of God. Nick and Ruth Ripkin um, felt called to the mission field, and he pastored for a while before he really um, took that call seriously. And, uh, and, then, um, and then, yeah, they felt like, it was, hey, God is moving us to the mission field. And so um, they, uh, they went to the mission field. But one of the things that surprised Nick Ripkin is, is that missions and missionary actually doesn't appear in the Bible. And that really surprised them. But as they began to study scripture and began to study, hey, what does it mean to be a missionary? Is it certainly it means is that God sends all of us into the world. Is in Matthew 28, it tell, talks about how Jesus, um, talking to his disciples, said, I am sending you, go teach, go baptize. In Acts 1.8, it says, you will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and to the utter ends of the earth. And um, when Nick and Ruth Ripken were looking at it, and they're saying to the ends of the earth, they're saying, they came up with their own definition for missionary, and they said that it's those people who go where Jesus is little known or not known at all. And they said that that, that, that call to missions, to, to be missionaries, means that they had to go to even, even um, I guess, more desperate places. Places where people knew very little about Jesus or nothing about Jesus. And that ended up being Somalia. And... Um, even to get to Somalia was a challenge. He heard that a Red Cross plane was going into Somalia, and so he went and met with the pilot and said, can I go with you? And the guy said yes, and so he went home and he packed up, and he flew into Somalia, and he said that when he landed, Somalia was going through a severe famine, drought, and political violence all at the same time. He said that when we were flying in, it felt like we were flying into hell. It was that bad. Just before he left, a leader found out, another leader found out that he was going there, and he put his arm around Nick and said, Nick, you've never been around people like this. They eat little missionaries like you for lunch. That's encouraging, isn't it? And uh, he decided to go anywhere. Um, the pilot literally said to him, is, is we're going to take you in and we're going to drop you off, but we don't know if we're going to be back in two weeks, in four weeks, or in six weeks. We can't make any promises at all. So they land, and, and before they left... Um, he'd heard about this orphanage, and, and he, he had people that were going to try to get word to the orphanage that he was coming. He didn't even know if the word would get there. He was able to find the orphanage. What he found on the streets of Somalia is, is that there was no food, there was no water, there was a lot of landmines, and there were people being shot for just moving in the wrong places and in the wrong ways. Thus, the reason why he said, it felt like I was flying into hell. On his second day there, there were about 15 vehicles that pulled into the little town that he was in near the orphanage, and he was thinking, finally, help has arrived. You know, these, these, these vehicles with these hardened, hardened men with AK-47s and, and um, 50 caliber rifles welded into the back of these vehicles, and um, he thought, help has arrived. No, instead, these vehicles ar- arrived with these bundles these bundles of plants, the leaves of which are a narcotic that's 15 times more powerful than amphetamines. And he said these people that had absolutely nothing flocked to these vehicles and gave what little bit they had, practically even being willing to trade their own children for this narcotic to numb the pain. 
And uh, it was after those few days there that he said, I was done. I was done. And he literally said to God, if God, if you want this place, you can have it. As he was getting ready to leave, he was able to turn his shortwave radio and he caught a BBC program. And there was actually a lady giving a devotional. Um, And uh, she was actually talking about keeping the Sabbath holy. And he said, well, God, if you were going to speak to me, you sure messed up this one. This isn't going to speak to me. And then as she got towards the end of the devotional, she started talking about the commands of God and what it means to be obedient to God. And he felt incredibly convicted. And he felt like God said to him, he felt like that God said, you can go. You can go away if you want to, but I'm going to be here. And I can do this work on my own. You really can go. You're free to go, but I'll be here. And that conviction led him to go back. Um, A little while later, he went back with a contingent from the United Nations to see if there was some way that through the United Nations and through a number of NGOs that they could do something to help the people of Somalia. And, um, And he was part of that group. His second day there again, The guard at the compound where he was staying, the guard came to him and said, hey, there's a guy at the gate, a Somali guy at the gate who's asking for you by name. And that was really confusing for Nick Ripken because he didn't know anyone that would be asking for him. So he went to the gate and he asked the man, can I help you? And the man said, the Holy Spirit told me to come and to visit you and he gave me your name. And the Holy Spirit said that I should come here and tell you who I am and what it's like for believers in Mogadishu. Because Christians, um, Somali Christians were persecuted. They were literally targeted. There's another story in there about four Christians who lost their lives because of their faith in Jesus. Um, And just, just this man showing up, the Holy Spirit told me that you would be here and gave me your name. And I'm here to tell you about what it's like for believers here. And Nick Rickman said, is, uh, he said, I didn't know what to do with that. I still don't know what to do with that. But he was obedient. And they started going. They started bringing food in. He said that it was terrible. They were burying 20 babies a day before they could even feed the, the babies that were left alive. It was really challenging. They'd go out into the streets of the city in order to help people taking medicine and food. And they said that when they'd arrive at these places, that the first thing that people asked for was not food, but for burial cloth to bury their children and their family members who had been killed in the violence. Everywhere people went, there were landmines and fighting. And Nick and Ruth began to ask the question, what does it look like to be the hands and feet of Christ in those places where it costs a lot to follow Jesus. And that led them around the world. His words were at this part in the film, and again, I encourage you to watch it. I started to see that evil has never stopped doing what evil does. 
evil never stops doing what evil does. And then he says, but God, but God never stops doing what God does. And that's why we're in Genesis 12. This is what I want to focus on this morning. We've been on the question, why does God allow so much evil and suffering? I want to flip that question a little bit, and I want us to consider, what is God doing about all of the evil and suffering? Christians and Jews have looked at Genesis chapter 12, these first three verses, and and they've recognized that essential to understanding the whole storyline of the Bible is understanding this passage right here. Because in this passage, you have God coming to Abram, soon to be Abraham, and essentially telling Abram, go. You need to go. Go. Go from your home. Go from your comfort. Go from your family. Just go. You got to leave this country, and you're going to go to a place that I'm going to show you. And, And he doesn't even name the place. He just says, go. I mean, he, Abram literally packs his bags, having no idea where he's going. I don't even know if God gave him the direction. North, south, east, west is as he just said, pack up. Start traveling. I'll show you when you get close to where you're supposed to be. But he also tells Abram in verse 2, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Whoever curses you, I will curse, and all of the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now remember where we've been. Over the previous three messages that I've given on this subject is is we've been in Genesis 1 through 3. We left off in Genesis 3 last week. We left off with the curses. There's this deceiving spirit that is come into the garden and, and he's deceived Adam and Eve. He's, he's, he's convinced them is, is that they can't trust God. That God doesn't have their best interests in mind and, and that if they really want to be like God and really know good and evil, then, then they, they, need to, they need to kind of take matters into their own hand and, and eat this forbidden fruit. It's always pictured as being an apple. We don't know what it is, actually. Is, is we just know that it's this forbidden fruit, that there's, there's one tree out of all of the garden that they are to withhold partaking in. Everything else is theirs. And this deceiving serpent says, is, is, oh, if only you knew what was good for you. If only you knew what would truly make you like God. And he convinces them to... to not trust God, and to reach for, for what has been forbidden so that they could have this knowledge that they didn't have. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, who was a pastor during World War II in Germany, who actively resisted Hitler and died for it, Dietrich Bonhoeffer declared that the, the primal sin of humanity consisted in putting the knowledge of good and evil before the knowledge of God. And I think that's pretty true. That they wanted this knowledge of good and evil more than they wanted God. And we're still bearing the effects of that. In fact, in a lot of ways, we're doing every day 
what Adam and Eve did in the garden, is we're declaring what we want over what God wants. This passage is an interesting passage because in it, um, in it, you you have um, you have this deceiving spirit, and then you have the curses. The serpent is cursed. Adam and Eve are now affected by the curse, and it affects all human relationships. It affects childbirth. It affects work. Even creation experiences the effects of the fall. The word that echoes through Genesis 3 is pain. Increased pain during childbirth. Increased pain relationally, particularly between men and women. Increased pain in work. I mentioned this last week. Work is not a part of the curse. Okay, work is good. God worked for six days. He worked and then he rested and he gave us a pattern. Work is good. We were created to do good work. And that work can be a huge blessing and it should be fun, but often it's not. Partly because, you know, we work in environments where people have a lot of opinions and resist each other and argue with each other. And so um, a part of the curse is increased. It, It literally says painful toil. You'll only receive the benefits of your work through painful toil. And that's, that's, that's where we were at last week. And Genesis 12 is actually filled with a hint of hope. It speaks that there's all of these problems. There's all of these problems. And Genesis 3 through 11 is, is about all of the problems. And then there's Genesis 12. Um, everything... Leading up to Genesis 12 leads us to Genesis 12. That's pretty obvious, right? Is 9, 10, 11, 12. That's kind of how it goes. By the way, the numbers weren't in the, the original Bible. We added them so that we could find our way around. But um, everything leads up to this. The Old Testament doesn't exist just to give us some platitudes and principles. It doesn't exist just to give us a set of rules. It tells us about who God is and what he's done for us and, and what he is doing. And a huge part of that is what he is doing, what he will do about all of life, but more specifically about what he's doing about suffering and evil. Now, we may not understand all of the whys of evil, but the Bible, it gives us a little bit about the origin of evil and how things came to be the way that they are now. But it doesn't answer all of our questions but it does tell us about God. And it tells us about the character of God. And it tells us about who he is and what he's doing. And specifically, more specifically, about what he is doing. About the suffering and the, the sin and the evil that we see. And the whole, the whole Bible hangs on Genesis chapter 12. It speaks about what happened before and what God's doing. And then it points us into the New Testament. So if Genesis 12 is the solution, then, then what's the problem? Well, that was Genesis 3, but also you can say Genesis 3 through 11. So just a really quick overview of Genesis 3 through 11. Genesis 3 verses 23 and 24 says, So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove man, and that means mankind, out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. He literally expels humanity from the garden. Genesis 4 
begins with the birth of Cain and then Abel. Cain turns out to be a murderer, and worse yet, the murder that he commits is his own brother's. And life has now become filled with death. Chapter 5 begins with God's intent for creation, that he created male and female and that he blessed them. That he made men and women in his image. But then the rest of chapter 5 reminds us that creation has been severely affected by all of the sin. And so following those opening verses, the rest of chapter 5 is a list of of the descendants of Adam. And it says, you know, so-and-so was born and then he died and then he died and then he died. Wow, so encouraging. But that echo, that refrain is a continual reminder of Genesis chapter 3. And we know that evil has entered the world, but we also know that it will be judged and it will be judged severely. Human beings who were intended to bear the image of God and to worship him. Instead, they gave their allegiance to a non-human creature, a former angel, who is now a fallen angel, who we refer to as Satan. They gave their allegiance to him. Did you know that um, Satan is actually uh, not a proper name, so to speak? It, It literally in scripture, when it's translated, it's the Satan. They gave their allegiance to the Satan. And Satan in Hebrew means the accuser or the adversary. And we just shorten it. Instead of the accuser, we just say Satan. The accuser and the adversary of God and everyone who loves God. The earth, instead of being ruled by God-fearing image bearers, is now characterized by sin. And God knowing, God knowing that, that they now have a sin nature and that they have this rebellious state, he drives them out of the garden lest they eat from the tree of life. Do you know where the other place that the tree of life shows up in scripture? Revelation 21 in the new creation. But God, in his grace, would not let them stay where they could eat of the tree of life and be forever in their rebellious state. Chapter 6 of Genesis. The world has descended into a whirlpool down a metaphorical toilet bowl. Don't you love some of these images that I just throw in there? Genesis 6, 5 through 8 says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Does that tell you how bad things have gotten? Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was evil all the time. And it says that the Lord regretted that he'd made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. Now, did God know? Was God sovereign? Like, did he know? This isn't speaking about God's lack of knowledge. It's just speaking is is that God is deeply moved by evil and not in a good way. And so the Lord says, I'll wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created and with them the animals. And then in verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You know, the butts of scripture always have a hint of hope. 
Nothing in this passage tells us, nothing, nothing tells us that, it doesn't indicate that rescuing Noah and his family will fix the entire problem. That's, that's God's grace. Is Noah found favor with him, but it didn't mean that Noah was a perfect person. It just tells us that, that the wickedness that had invaded the earth was so great that it grieved God. And the flood is a reminder to us that God hates evil. And what it does to his creation. And that he can and that he sometimes will put a stop to evil. He'll stop it dead in its tracks. And the flood is a part of his judgment, but it's also a reminder of his grace. But Noah found favor with God. Out of simply God's grace. And he preserves a remnant Noah and Noah's families are a part of God's preserving power. But Genesis 11, again, we see the effects of evil. In Genesis 11, 1 through 4, it says, Now the whole world was one language and common speech, and the people moved eastward. They found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the earth. Now, it's, it's, it doesn't seem terrible, but, but here's what's happening is, is the people are coming together. They have a common speech and they're saying is, is, hey, let's make a tower to the heavens by our own power. Let's get to where God is. And God looks at the arrogance of mankind and says, look at these people who literally have become so prideful that their pride has risen to the heavens, literally in the form of a tower. And God again says, I won't let this go on. I won't let pride go unchecked. I won't let arrogance happen where Mankind again chooses to do things their own way. And so we're told that God confused them. And the way that he did it is by, by um, putting barriers in their language. And so now there are many languages. And he scatters them. They literally spread out in the now language groups that are represented. Over and over again, we see the effects of evil and the growth of evil. But we also see God stopping evil in its tracks. We see God's judgment before evil gets too far. Whether it's exile for Adam and Eve, punishment with some grace for Cain, the flood for Noah's generation, or the confusion and the dispersion for Babel. It's all a reminder that God takes evil seriously. God always judges evil, and that's a good thing. We don't want for evil to go unchecked. We want for evil to be judged. If someone were to hurt one of our family members, we would want justice. Thank goodness God 
you know, gave us, and, and, you know, government can be good, but he gave us government in order to judge evil. That's what good governing is supposed to do. So that murderers actually face justice. It is good when evil gets judged. Now, it's also good that if someone hurts someone who's mine, that I'm not the one to judge because I would, um, I would judge in anger. Um, God, God, out of his love, judges evil. But thank goodness it's not all judgment. Genesis 12 reminds us that God in his sovereignty, in his sovereignty, is a God who blesses and he speaks blessing. He speaks blessing as a counter to the curse. There's protection in spite of Cain's murderous action. There's homecoming after exile. There's an olive branch after the flood. And there's a new family created to be a blessing after the scattering of all of the people. Genesis chapter 12 reminds us that the people who are the problem will also be used by God as a part of the solution. Abraham is far from a perfect saint. In fact, when he's called, he's not even following God. And yet God says, I choose you, go, I'll show you where. You got to leave your family though, you got to leave your comfort though, and go. And Abraham becomes a nomad. Going he knows not where, but knowing that God's promises are going with him and that someday God will fulfill all of those promises. Abraham represents the children of the promise. He represents that there are carriers of the promise. We remember that all of humanity is still in a rebellious state. This is one of the things important to remember. There's no us versus them. There's no we're better than they are. There's no us versus them. Is, is Every single one of us has incredible capacity for evil. And we could all be more evil. Have you ever thought about this? As, as even Hitler could have kicked his dog a few more times. I didn't know this. Someone came up and said his dog's name was Blondie. I'm like, you got to be kidding. Who knows that? He said, actually, is, is that when he knew that he had lost the war and he was taking that pill, that suicide pill, he tested it on his own dog. To make sure that it worked. And then he took the pill. We could all be more evil than we are. Even if we are getting that check in our, in our personhood. That even having a conscience is a gift from God. And the danger is, is that if you choose to do things your own way for too long, you will sear your conscience and you will no longer feel bad about sin. That's why people get to the point where they no longer value life. That's why people end up taking lives and sometimes not feeling guilty about it is because they stop listening to the conscience that God gave them and their conscience literally becomes seared so that it no longer speaks to them. And that's when you end up with Hitler's or Jeffrey Dahmer's who grew up around the Christian church and others. 
We desperately need to be redeemed and restored. And Genesis 12 speaks about God blessing. In Genesis 22, 18, God says to Abraham, through your offspring, all of the nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. And that's so interesting because it's ironic that blessing, that blessing is about believing and obeying. Interestingly, the curse is also. Because they believed and they obeyed the serpent. Which resulted in the curse. And when we believe and obey God, we're ushered into the blessing of God. I don't think that I can pull this up. Maybe I can. That last song that we sang, um, it actually, I want nothing more than you. You know, take this world, give me Jesus. Take this life, give me yours. You are the blessing, Jesus. You are my reward. You know, ultimately, that's what the blessing points to, is it points to faith. Faith not in ourselves, but faith in the work of God. It's really important to remember is, is that it's really not about what we do. It's about what God has done. And all of that blessing for Abraham, it it points to a blessing that will be provided for us so that we can be a blessing. And it ultimately points to Jesus. And that that God, out of his great love for us, he steps out of heaven. That's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And then Jesus comes and he lives the life that we can't live. And ultimately, he submits to evil, the evil of the cross, and God uses evil to overcome evil. And it's because of that, that that Paul in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, he can say, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Literally, he takes the curse upon himself. For it is written, curses everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles, you could just say to the rest of us, through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. Remember what Nick Ripkin said, evil always does what evil does. And God is always doing what God is doing. God refuses to let evil continue to do what evil does. He announces a plan to bless to bring his goodness to Abraham and then to Israel and then from Israel to the rest of humanity. And ultimately, that would come as a gift of salvation through Jesus. And so Galatians 3.9 says, So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Evil is a four-letter word. So is love. Because of his grace, God loves you. He blesses you. He favors you just like he favored Noah and Abraham. And for no other reason than simply him being creator and God. God's love and his blessings extend toward you 
And it does not depend on your performance. In Ephesians 1.3, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. In Romans 10, verse 12, it says, For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. That literally, all we have to do is call on him and say, Lord, restore me, give me your salvation, redeem me, forgive me for my sin, for my evil. Lord, thank you for Jesus. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. And then 1 John 3, 16, this is how we know what love is. Christ Jesus laid down his life for us. Christ Jesus laid down his life for us. God hates evil. He hates evil and he judges evil. But he doesn't do it by just wiping us out. He does resist evil. He does contain evil. He does judge evil. But out of his mercy and out of his grace, he blesses. And we are ushered into that blessing when we call out to him. When we call on his name. You know, um, scripture's clear is his call on the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's literally is his trust in Jesus who stepped out of heaven, was born in the flesh. He lived the life that we can't live and he took the ultimate evil. He took the punishment of the cross being the only totally righteous person to ever live. He was treated like a sinner. Scripture says that he, he took sin. He became sin for each one of us. And the picture there is, is that he being the righteous one, when we bring our unrighteousness to the cross, it's crucified on the cross. Jesus gets our punishment. We get his righteousness. It's the great exchange. When you come to the cross and you say, here's my sin, here's my evil. He says, great, I'll take it. I'll take it. Scripture says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. What's that joy? It's not the cross. It's sinners saved. Evil judged. The punishment taken and he takes it he gets our sin we get his righteousness that's how much god loves you if you haven't put your faith in jesus it's as simple as saying i'm sorry for my sin and i repent forgive me jesus i trust you and then by faith you're a child of abraham You're adopted into God's family, not because you've done everything right. You haven't, and you won't this side of heaven. 
but you're adopted into God's family. You become his child. And one day, God's going to make everything right in this very broken world. And from now till then, we're called to receive the blessing, which we sang earlier, you are the blessing, Jesus. You are my reward. We're called to receive the blessing so that we can be a blessing. And then we seek to be the hands and feet of Christ in a very broken world. Let's pray. Father God, thanks for your grace and for your mercy. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus, it's just saying yes to him. Forgive me, Lord. Yes. I'll follow Jesus. I'll live by faith. You haven't done that. Saying to God, yes. If you're saying yes, would you tell someone? It's very important that you begin to own it and that you begin to tell it to people. If you've already been following Christ, just to be able to say, Jesus, you are the blessing. You are my reward. Help me to be a blessing. Father God, thanks in the name of Jesus. Amen.